My name is Simon Blake. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking lads? You're going to get into, out of the game where you've been into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Simon Blake. Sure. So I'm Simon Blake. I'm the Chief Executive of Mental Health First Aid England, which is a social enterprise uh, with a vision around improving mental health. Um, I have worked most of my life in the social sector um, and um, yeah, around mental health, sexual health, um, well-being. Um, and my first ever job, which I think links to this podcast, was working with young men uh, around masculinity uh, and sexual health in the South Wales Valleys um, at least 25 years or so ago. So it's good to be talking about mental health and, and men now. As per usual, I've got the two chaps with me today, Ryan and Ant, fellas. How are we? Ant, you're fresh with paint as usual. Absolutely, mate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, flying, as they'd say. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Great to see. With your um, headset on, it does look like you are operating a, an aeroplane. I'm currently cruising at 32,000 feet. <laughs> I've never seen you cruise at any point, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen me slow down, that's about it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Ryan, how about you, mate? How are we? Great, mate. Favourite time of the week. Yeah, that's it, innit? We're all here together and it's a, it's a safe, happy space for the man-marking fellas. And, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be a part of, to look at your lovely faces at this time in the morning Stop on a Sunday. I wouldn't get up for anything else. <laughs> Apart from maybe a trip to Peterborough away in the cold. Are we up for this? <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> And a hello to you, the listeners, as well. If you if you do enjoy this episode, if you enjoy what we've been doing over the many, many months since uh, since 2020, then if you wouldn't mind jumping onto Apple Podcasts, onto iTunes, dropping us a review and a comment, that would be fantastic and it helps us share the podcast and helps us grow the podcast and reach more listeners. So let's get on with today's episode. Before we get to Sam and Blake, we're going to do an opening question. And last week, we saw the return of the Champions League, the round of 16. So what I want from you two is to hit me with your favourite round of 16 Champions League goal. And Ryan, I'm going to come to you first, my friend. Okay. Yeah, it was hard this because it was so specific. But um, I went for Lionel Messi against Leverkusen. He scored five goals that game, believe it or not. And then one of them was at a lob. And he actually scored two lobs that game. One was like a proper scoop. He got right in front of the keeper's grill and just like <laughs> scooped it like he would in, in, the, in the primary school play yard. And uh, it wasn't that one. It was the second one, which was a little bit more cultured. But I just think he was at the peak of his powers then. He was literally just unstoppable. Like he just dragged teams to comfortable victories. I think he scored seven that day. I'd say he scored five. was probably involved in all seven. And uh, yeah, check it out on YouTube. It's just ridiculous. Isn't it mad that there's the that Lionel Messi is so good and has and has done that type of thing so many times that there is literally a Champions League match where he scores five goals and I've absolutely no memory of it. Yeah, that that's the thing with him, isn't it? You, like he set the standards so high 
that they all kind of just rolled into one. He scored so many goals that were quite similar as well. Like they couldn't stop what he was going to do. Yeah, like you knew what he was going to do, but it's yeah. like, what do you want me to do with it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but um, just watch all fact. There's one that's quite funny. He does like this amazing move, and then the keeper just accidentally parries it to him. He just taps it in, and it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like it just went. But everything just went his way. But like he kind of. That was kind of his quality, everything going in his way, because he just couldn't stop him. Yeah, there used to be there used to be that time when I really felt sorry for keepers at the new camp. Like, <laughs> it, it, it looked miserable, didn't it? It, it yeah. looked all. I mean, even to try and kick the ball out so they wouldn't get the ball back, like yeah. to your own team, like it, yeah. it just looked impossible. <laughs> the like, goals kicking it against huge, the wall. Don't they, the new camp oh. as well, and the pitch is like it. It definitely isn't that much bigger than like some normal pitching, like. League Two or something, but it looks absolutely ginormous. Yeah. <laughs> like the fans looks... don't even cheer; they make that noise like they've just lost the rap battle. Don't they? Like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a cheer; it's just like we've just done you again in your face. And what's your uh, round of sixteen Champions League goal, my friend? Uh, it was one I saw on Twitter the other day, actually. Um, it was Tony Cruz's against Arsenal. Oh, yes. The Emirates. Uh, it's a lovely little cutback, and he just bends it. It goes like outside the post and bends into the top corner. And it's really good because the keeper is actually at full stretch. It's not one of them where the keeper's like stood in the middle and you're going, eh, could he have saved that? Blah, blah, blah. And he's absolutely flown into the post and he's just lying on the floor. And I'm thinking, you're that keeper right now. You're going, oh, God, Christ, why, why, why did I bother? <laughs> like, this, is, this is for Bayern Munich, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was an absolute a lovely one, that. There's a lot of... Um, Arsenal seem to have a lot of good goals scored against them in the Champions League. Probably just because they had quite a lot of goals they used to ship in the Champions League, so I suppose it makes sense. I, when Ryan was talking about Lionel Messi, I was reminded of that one that he scored against Arsenal where he kind of chips it over the over the keeper. As the keeper... He, I think he's running through and then he sort of lobs it over the keeper and then puts it in on the other side. That was against Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal just I mean, Arsenal conceded a lot of goals anyway. Like in the Premier League, they used to concede random, terrible goals, and they went into the Champions League at the same time, which is really odd because everyone thought Arsenal weren't very good, but they were always in the Champions League. Mm, and then that was weird, it, it? there was goals like that one Ronaldo scored that big free kick, like mm. from miles away, like reminiscent of David Seaman against the Didi Haman. <laughs> and uh, like just some of them are just you're just thinking. They're so preventable, but they're so good at the same time. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking speaking of Arsenal, I was when I was looking for one of these goals, uh, they they won away at Milan in the San Siro. Fabregas scores quite a nice one from about thirty yards out into the bottom corner, um, and that was that was nice to just reminisce about when Arsenal used to go and do decent things like that. So that was that was quite enjoyable. Um, but the goal that I went for, which I'm surprised neither you went for, because it seems like a, a classic of the genre, was. Um, do you remember that Ronaldinho one at Stamford Bridge? Oh, yeah. Outside, uh, yeah. you know, when he kind of stood on the edge of the box and there was, didn't move and just kind of clipped it in with the outside of his foot into the bottom corner. Man, he poked it. What an absolute charlatan toe poke, isn't it? They had a um, lovely the, finish, that. I think the worst thing about that, though, 
is it wasn't the Champions League ball. It was like some random Umbro ball that they used. <laughs> it was absolutely crap. There was no need. I don't know, there was no need for, to use it. For some reason, it wasn't the Champions League ball. Had they forgotten the balls and someone just had one in the boot of the car? I know. If you look back in like the Champions League history, like just randomly, there'll be like like Barcelona used to use that Nike ball that like clearly looked really heavy and only they could kick. Like <laughs> maybe it was like a maybe it was like a futsal ball. It, I don't know. Did no, when they played um... English teams, they just brought the futsal ball out. <laughs> we we trying to clip it into channels. <laughs> Do you know the Iniesta goal against Chelsea? Was that last sixteen? No, one no, that was uh, quarterfinals because it was to get into the semis, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. A it, it's it was, a disgrace. Oh, that was. Yeah. I think that is up there as the one of the all time. Like Champions League evenings, that because it was just so because there was a few times that Chelsea played Barcelona, wasn't there? And it, and it yeah. was like a little bit of a rivalry, and the in, intermixed, intermixed into all that was. Um, <laughs> I'd love a mint right now. Breath stinks. Um, <laughs> I, I, intermixed into all that was uh, Mourinho being an Inter and winning that game at Barcelona to win the Champions League and it was just it was just all this this stuff going on and that game was absolutely unreal there's Michael Ballack chasing the referee down the pitch it was a disgrace though the whole thing was absolutely mental and when you look when you watch the highlights back none of the penalties that they appeal for are penalties like they're just not they're all like you know things where you're like like they're, they're, they're they're like something's happened but it's not quite a foul but like because there was about four of them, they were just absolutely fuming about it. <laughs> if there's a, if there's any Chelsea fans listening, me and Ryan stand very very far away from those. But did, there was some bad decisions in that, wasn't it? If memory serves, didn't you have a goal disallowed or something that was on as well? Yeah, but they just kept saying there, there was like about three incidents where they were claiming penalties, and if it, there was just one of them, then you wouldn't even think twice about it. But I think it was because there was an accumulation of them. But they were none of them were like stonewall penalties that didn't get given. I'm going to look back at the highlights now and there was an absolute calamity in the box or something. I'm going to have to release a statement via my solicitor. I remember it. I'm I'm going to look back at it as well. I'm pretty sure there was some bad decisions. I remember uh, remember it being very, like, fever pitch, like, type of game. Chelsea just lost their heads. Yeah, it was amazing. You get two players running around after a referee. You've not done well. Yeah, it was just amazing. And, like, it was a good... It was it was a, a high. I remember there was a period of the Champions League where there was loads of those games where they were just absolutely ferocious, and, and Liverpool were involved in quite a lot of them as well, and United as well. To be fair, but where where it was just a scrap for like 180 minutes between like world class players who'd just be absolutely kicking. Football was so good then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was around. I'm going to say 2006 to about 2010. It was, yeah. just, it was just carnage. Well, it was because, I mean, Liverpool and Chelsea played each other so often in those those Champions League games. And then there was that, every every single one of them up until the one that was like 4-all or something had been like really close, really tight. You could feel the tension in the ground. And then I think because they'd known each other so well, it just broke off. And like it was like a big anom- anomaly of like 4-all game at Stamford Bridge. Like, yeah. How does that come about? And then they just like randomly, you, when you're watching it, you're like, you know, it's it's going to be Rafa Benitez on the side for Liverpool. And you think it, it's a little roulette to see which Chelsea manager is going to be on the side. Oh, it's Avram Grant this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that Barcelona game is that SCN goal, do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How good was SCN? 
Essien scored a few random goals, considering he scored about six goals in his whole career. Every single one of them was an absolute paler from about 50 yards out. Yeah. Every single time. Anyway, let's get on with, with today's episode. We've got Simon Blake on the show today. Simon Blake is the, the CEO of, of uh, Mental Health First Aid England. So, first port of call, Ryan, do you want to give the listeners a little bit of an idea as to why we wanted to speak to Simon and a bit of a background on how the interview came about? Yeah, of course. So, um, as you've just mentioned, Simon's involved in Mental Health First Aid England. Uh, he's also held senior positions at NUS. Uh, he's a trusted Stonewall and he's just got uh, like a, a great knowledge overall on a lot of the topics that have come up in this podcast. And I suppose when you think of his role now, it's, it's probably important for our listeners to, to understand and know what, what's being done out there, what services are available and what direction those services are heading in. So, we reached out to him. <clears throat> he kindly agreed to come on the show, and he just had so much knowledge in it in so many different areas. Uh, also, just sexual health, um, gay and trans rights, and, and a lot of different areas as well, which obviously isn't our strength in, in what our understanding is. So we wanted to learn more as well for, for our own development, I think. And yeah, Sam was a great fellow, and um, we kind of stayed in touch with him as well since uh, we interact quite a lot of him on Twitter, which people might see. And yeah, it'd be just somebody we wanted to lean on really to to help our listeners understand what they can do and what help is available to them. Absolutely. And I think it's probably important at this point for us to kind of give the listeners a bit of a background as to what Mental Health First Aid, First Aid England is and what they do. Um, we do talk to Simon about MHFA and about the courses that they offer. Um but when we were listening back, we kind of realised we maybe need to set a little bit of context for for the listeners so that you, you know you can get a bit of a better understanding as to when we talk about MHFA, what we mean. So Mental Health First Aid England are a social enterprise and their vision is to improve the mental health of the nation. Mental Health First Aid is a training course which teaches people how to identify, understand and help someone who may be experiencing a mental health issue. MHFA won't teach you to be a therapist but it will teach you to listen, reassure and respond even in a crisis and even potentially stop a crisis from happening. You'll learn to recognise warning signs of mental health and develop the skills and confidence to approach and support someone while keeping yourself safe. So that's what MHFA England do and they provide sort of training courses predominantly for people in workplaces so that they can have a, a mental health first aid trainer in every workplace in the country. I think that's kind of the, the ultimate aim, isn't it, in the in the very long run. But we do talk to Simon about that in the interview. Anthony, do you want to give the uh, the listeners the... Uh, I gave you your full title then. Oh, it's weird. <laughs> Ant, do you want to give the the listeners... I think when on your on your Zoom thing, your full name's on there, the old Anthony Olsen's on there. So, I, you know, I just thought I'd throw that at you. Um, but yeah, Ant, would you like to give the listeners the uh, the theme for this episode, please? Yeah, so obviously the theme we came up with is we don't need to have the answer in order to be willing to have the conversation. And I think uh, the conversations around uh, these type of topics that we talk with uh, Simon about are are ones that people don't really want to have at all because uh, quite often, and I can understand it, quite often people get a bit scared of them. People get a bit, you know, worried about, you know, saying something a bit silly and and saying, you know, getting them on the wrong side of of it and be coming off well, not I wouldn't say stupid, but coming off as a as a bad person, and and they're quite worried about that, so it's easier for them to not have those conversations. But I think the beauty of this interview, we've worried a lot. Like obviously, we recorded it a few months back. We've worried that it, it wouldn't stay relevant and it wouldn't stay um, up to up to date. And 
this interview really is up to date. It's it's it it'll you could listen to this in any year, I think, at the moment, and and it would be perfect to listen to 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 understand what what everyone's going through, what what different uh, cultures and different people are going through. Um, and Simon was was perfect. I, I wasn't on the interview, but I put the questions together, and there was a load of topics that you could talk to him about. Um, there was a few key ones at that time, um, stuff about the the type of videos that they use to help people understand what mental health is was a, was a real big topic uh, at the time as well, and it still is, you know, to to try and understand it and try and understand why that needs to be adjusted uh, and adapted to the current climate. So that's a really interesting thing that he that he talks about and and one that we should all kind of take notice of. Um, and again, his ability to to do that is him having that conversation, him not being scared of of, of getting involved and, and understanding the, the the opinions of people and the reasons why those those things need to change or adapt. So it was um it was fantastic interview. Uh, it was really well put together by some handsome chap. Um and performed <laughs> and performed even better by by two two others. Um, so yeah it was uh, so confused was, as to which role I play here. I know I know I'm handsome but I just don't know which handsome chap I'm playing. <laughs> yeah, so it was really good. But uh, I mean, there, there are themes that we pick up on. Um, I'm sure that the listeners will pick up on on some others. And if they do, they can email us, can't they? They can. Uh, manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on the Twitter at marking underscore man. So we're now going to leave you with Simon's interview. We'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. Would you mind giving us a bit of an idea as to why you agreed to come and do an interview for us? Sure. I, I mean, firstly, you you asked politely and asked nicely, so it's always rude <laughs> to say to say no when people ask nicely. But you know, seriously, what you're doing is really really important. Yeah, you know, we know that too often uh, blokes don't talk about things, whether that is about sexual health, whether that is about mental health, whether that is about feelings, um, and when we don't talk about things. Um, we know that they bottle up just because we don't talk about feelings, because we don't talk about our mental health. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that if we need help, um, we don't get it. And in a worst case scenario, that, of course, means that uh, uh, you know people can take their own life and all sorts of things between being very, very well and taking their own life um, in the middle. So you know, on, on a personal level, this feels really important we've got to get better at talking about feelings we've got to get better at talking about help about our brains um and as a culture uh we we have to get better at helping people to understand that asking for help is a good thing it's not a sign of weakness it's not a sign of vulnerability so anything that i can do uh to uh, to amplify the voices to find ways of reaching new people is always is always a joy and i think what you're doing is brilliant we were going to jump in, Simon, and talk about your time at MHFA. But just to begin with, you just touched on about masculinity and young men and the work you used to do. Do you mind if we just ask you about what that work was, just to, to get a bit of an insight? Because I think that's quite an important topic. Sure. So um, I uh, was new graduate from Cardiff University and um, had recently returned from a sort of errant trip for in search of love to America and was looking for all sorts of jobs um, as part of a year out. And I was lucky enough to get a job working 
um, delivering what was one of the first sex education projects specifically targeting young men. And what that did uh, was led into all sorts of conversations about what it means to be a man, you know, why actually, uh, you know, one of the things which was one, one of the questions we used to ask is why is it okay for uh, people to show emotion on football pitches or to hug each other and to celebrate in the way they do when you, you know, men are not supposed to do that in, in the streets. And so all of it. So, you know, yes, it was a sex education project, but essentially it came down to what does it mean to be a boy or a young man? What does it mean to be uh, growing up with those restrictions about gender and gender roles and gendered expectations uh, and 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 helping people to understand that those expectations whether it's about not asking for help whether it's about wanting sex all the time whether it's you know being perceived to always be uh, watching pornography whatever it was make up uh, uh, you know, create a, a huge amount of, of difficulties and issues for for young men so that was my first um, ever job and 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 it I guess what was interesting about that was even though I was by that age 22 yeah 22 I'd never really thought about masculinity at all until that that point but of course once you start talking about it and understanding it and thinking about it you realize you know and of course so I grew up in in the, in the 70s and there's been some shift but not huge uh, so sort of shifts, so was you know, 70s and 80s, um, but everywhere you look, whether it's on soap operas, in advertising, whether it's you know on YouTube now or, or Twitter, there is real expectation about the way that boys and men behave and how girls and women behave, and it causes all sorts of problems for everyone. Yeah, just just on that, as you touched on, you, you grew up in the 70s when it was probably a lot more sort of stiff upper lip. Um, men do this, women do that. And we like to say that society's becoming more accepting. Do you think that's almost made it more difficult for men to get to grips of the masculinity? Because there's almost not as black and white as it was perceived. Although we're heading in the right direction, there's still like a long way to go. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that actually there is an opening up a little bit. But if you were to ask you know, the average seven-year-old, the average 15-year-old, if such a thing exists as average, but you know, talk to people on the street and they still you know, grow up knowing that you don't ask for help, that you don't talk about certain things. That uh, yeah, And, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm always one of those people that thinks, things often are different. It doesn't necessarily make them easier or harder. What I do think is brilliant now is that we are recognizing that everybody has feelings, everybody has mental health, that everybody needs help and advice and that we're doing, you know, that, that social media and podcasting and all sorts of uh, uh, other opportunities to start having conversations like we're having now I think are breaking down some of those taboos, but there's a really long way to go. Yeah, I com completely agree. It's it quite funny, really, on a point you made earlier that we had somebody on the show who said football was just um, billions of pounds spent to get men to hug each other and tell each other they love each other, which I thought was quite a good way of looking at it, really, because we're the same, myself and Daniel, that like we, we've got a group of friends or 
relatively typical men. But then at football, you will find yourself turn to the man alongside you and hug him and you think, where, where else would I do that? Uh, so it's quite interesting, really. Just uh, moving on then now to um, you were appointed CEO at MHFA in 2018. How, how did that role come about and, and what made you pursue taking that on? So it was yeah it was advertised in in the um, yeah public uh, market and uh, and a headhunter uh, called David Fielding uh, who contacted me uh, and said yeah this is something that feels like it's right up your street if you look at your history having done you know work with uh, yeah in around sexual health I was at Brook uh, the Young People's Sexual Health Charity which has a a, a service in 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 the Wirral. I'm a nurture fact, one of the very good um, early boys workers um, who did a lot of work around masculinity, Greg Filola used to work from the Wirral uh, uh, Brook as, uh, as well. But um, I'd done, done that, so I'd worked at Brook, I'd then been at the National Children's Bureau where I'd done a lot of work around public health, mental health, well-being, sexual health, um, and then uh, uh, being at the National Union of Students where mental health was, was obviously a really important issue for students. and. So at the heart of where, yeah, for, for me, I'm about wanting to create an equal world, a fair world, a world in which you know, our common humanity uh, is, 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 is recognized and understood and valued. Um, and so mental health yeah, is just yeah, a really, really important part of that. Mental health is a social justice issue. It's an inequalities issue. It's a humanity um, issue. And... So yeah, delighted when I was appointed um, as 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 chief executive um, because it just feels like it it plays to everything which I believe in. And I, I yeah, I, I guess if you were to ask my mum and dad, what would they say? That I was always one of the people who liked talking about the things that you didn't want that other people didn't want to talk about. And you know, so the stigma associated with mental health. Um, is a, is an issue which to me is absurd. We talk about mental health as a sensitive issue. It's only sensitive because of our uh, attitude towards it, and and that feels like a really important uh, part of this work: breaking down stigma, making access to help easier, connecting with our humanity, and what makes us all individual and brilliant. Yeah, I agree. If you look at how much money is spent in the personal training world and gyms and dietitians and those type of things your, your mental well-being is just as important as your physical well-being and hopefully that can that can start to catch up what and, and sorry, what, sorry, what? sorry i was just going to say that just uh, i completely agree and i did an interview with um ruby wax who talked about you know our body is a onesie we often think about our body and our brain as separate but actually it is a onesie and that to me yeah, whatever you think of onesies, <laughs> sums, <laughs> up, sums up brilliantly. Uh, yeah, what the connection between our body and mind, and, and why we must think about them together, not separately. Yeah, I was having this conversation with um, the head of sports science at Tranmere yesterday, and people don't realise as well that like a lot of the serotonin is produced in your gut, so a lot of diet and brain connection, or gut and brain connection, is very vital. So if you look after one, the other can can often catch up and. I also think it gives people hope that they're not always going to be in a dark place, that they can put things in place to 
to help the, the the mental health if they do improve other aspects of, of the life i know it's not always as simple as that for everybody but um i do believe it can be conducive to to having good mental health when you, you improve other aspects of your life that you can control um in terms of a regular day for yourself then what does that look like well i guess luckily for me there isn't a regular day. I mean, lockdown is obviously a particular or, or the, the sort of time we've had now. Yeah, I spend a lot of time at my kitchen table. Um, but uh, but yeah, that sort of sense of a regular day. I think there's, there's sort of three or four key areas. One is obviously um, being clear about what our strategy is and what our approach is and how we make sure that we provide um, good quality um, training and everything that runs along with that. So everything that goes internally around resourcing, around people, around uh, learning. Um, and then uh, there's another piece, which is um, about the external uh, uh, environment. We work collaboratively with um, a lot of organizations uh, to try and influence um, better uh, mental health um, and well-being uh, uh, overall. And then there's sort of the, the governance and management. Uh, you know, I obviously have a responsibility to uh, my board, which I'm part of as a social enterprise, but also you know, managing the exec directors who have direct responsibility for um, all of the different areas. So on any one day, uh, yeah, that sort of combination of trying to think strategically about the internal work, trying to think strategically and, and collaborate with others around how to set an environment that works. And then you know, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of delivery um, uh, as it were, and then speaking to find people such as yourself on podcasts and uh, trying to make sure that we uh, are, are using platforms and opportunities to challenge stigma and really talk about positively about mental health and well-being. Well, that's great. And I, I must say, I think you, you're doing a really great job. And I just wanted to ask, do, do you love your job, Sam? Do you wake up every day with positive attitude and love going to work? hundred percent. I mean, obviously, there are some Monday mornings where, you know, I'm a bit sluggish and, and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, on, a, on, a, on the wholesale, I've, I've always, I love working. Um, I love, uh, yeah, that whole sense about trying to just do a bit to make the world a bit better uh, and to... And, and 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 yeah yeah i mean I, I i could i could be effusive um all day but yes is a short answer i think i've got enormous privilege um to be in this position uh on and, and every day at some point i will feel that sort of overwhelming responsibility and privilege yeah i think just from the 20 minutes speaking to you so far you can tell you've got a lot of enthusiasm for the role which i think is highly important and I think I read that the mission is to train one in 10 people in mental health awareness skills. Do you know so far roughly how many people have undertaken the training? So um, I, I, I do know that we're currently at one in 70 of the adult population. Um, I don't know what that translates to in exact numbers. We've got uh, on my um, data uh, a spreadsheet on my computer at any one time I can click a button and it will tell me so one in ten just to be really clear the reason that we're saying one in ten is because we believe that if we can do that you create the cultural tipping point where you challenge stigma where you create an unshakable belief in people that 
something needs to be different. And once you create that unshakable belief, you are then in a situation where you are able to, you know, that doing nothing isn't an option and that asking for help, getting help, preventing poor mental health, promoting positive well-being all becomes part of people's everyday piece. So, so we, yeah, our mission's train one in 10 because we believe that will create the cultural tipping point. We're at one in 70. Uh, and, you know, we obviously COVID-19 has uh, put, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a temporary pause, you know, for a few weeks. But the course, the, the you know, our online mental health first aid course um, is now available online. So we can continue to work towards achieving that mission. Yeah, in my, in my day job, I, I work for a tech company that provides online and classroom driven training predominantly to the hospitality industry um, and we've found sort of in the last two years that a, a lot of the companies we work with are now seeking um, mental health training both the course that you offer and also some some digital versions of that as well and there does seem to be a greater awareness now for employers to to offer this training almost as a standard really to make sure there's a mental health first aider in, in, in each site that, that they operate and I think that could that can only be a good thing. You work with, with over 20,000 employees in, in a bid to create a better working environment. Has there been a bigger uptake in the courses more recently with the topic of mental health coming to the fore? So there's definitely over the last four or five years you know, this huge awareness and understanding around mental health and well-being and I was speaking to the chief exec of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development earlier this week you know who's just saying that absolutely staff well-being staff mental health is is firmly on the agenda and I think you know COVID-19 has shown that people understand the importance of mental health and staff well-being I guess where where we are now is that we recognize uh, it's absolutely critical importance and as we move out of lockdown as we move into uh, a new uh, way of working a new understanding about what happens then i hope that what we'll see is organizations recognizing that for some people getting back to the office is the most exciting thing but others getting back to the office is terrifying and creates anxiety and our job now is to find ways to ensure that our return to the office plans or you know people who've worked all the way through uh, in 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 various different environments that employers are thinking what do we need to do to promote positive health and well-being what can we do to help people feel safe what can we do to help people know that we support their well-being um, and will protect uh, and, and support them uh, as we move, move forward into whatever the next phase looks like. And we're going to have to just keep talking about well-being. Yeah, we get, and and uh, the reason I keep saying well-being, I think it's really important when we're talking about mental health to be clear that we're talking about a positive sense of mental health. Too often when people say mental health, they mean mental illness. And yeah, if we're thinking about people's mental health and well-being, that's about the positive uh, supportive measures and ensuring that people who need uh, clinical or community support are also able to get that too. Yeah, I think that's very true, and that really does resonate regarding the the anxiety about returning to work, people coming off furlough schemes, 
I know probably a lot of the nation is is gripped by that at the moment and what the future holds for them with economic uncertainty. In, in terms of mental health training and, and, and almost the mental health well-being of people in a workplace, a lot of that is obviously dependent on how good the employer is at, at putting procedures in place. Do you think we'll reach a period where it would be in laws and legislation to to provide better care and what i mean by that is in the same way you'd have a fire warden on site or a, a physical first aid or you adhere to general data protection rules do you think in in soon it'll be a case of you have to have a mental health first aid on site in workplaces so my absolute belief is that it's a when not if i guess you know clearly yeah, with Brexit, with COVID-19, who knows when that when will be. But I do really believe that you know, we're moving in that direction. The HSE, the Health and Safety Executive, for the first time last year in their guidance, uh, made it a requirement to ensure that it understood uh, around mental health, that employers already have a duty of care. Um, there's all sorts of equalities legislation which is absolutely about mental health so this this sort of period um will be you know uh, one where i genuinely believe that you know it may it may be in a year it may be in five years it may be in 10 years but absolutely i think there is a a moment at which it will be uh, absolutely in legislation um so for me it is very clearly a when not if but the when you know I, I couldn't tell you the mile marker on that. No, of course. And just for anybody who's listening, who may be interested in, in the courses that you offer, are they tailored to different workplaces or, or is it more of a one-size-fits-all course that they undertake? So there's there's different uh, 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 options. Of course, so the, the core of the course um, is always the same, but in terms of, uh, yeah, if people were to, go to sign on to an open course, which they can find out about on um, mhfaengland.org uh, then you know it will be a, a two-day uh, uh, course and, and there'll be different experiences and different uh, understandings that people bring into that course um, similarly if people commission uh, into a workplace um, then you know the context uh, may be slightly different we work in all sorts of different sectors and media in charity in construction in financial services um, and so some of that sort of backdrop and, and understanding about particular issues and understanding, um, you know, will be different. And some of the conversations will be different. The case studies, you know, will be uh, uh, de developed in order to reflect the environment that people work in. So it very much depends on the route. But as with all experiential learning, you know, it's very much about what people bring to that uh, uh, classroom, if you like. What do people bring from their own experience, which creates that richness of learning and understanding? And, and you know, it's, it, it, I, it's a really powerful course and it always draws uh, a, a lot of um, personal experience and, and understanding of the world, which, uh, you know, is, is, is a, a very privileged uh, experience to have. And, and how would somebody go about accessing these courses? So uh, if it's an individual, the, the best thing to do is to, as I say, to go on to 
mhfaengland.org. Um, um, there, there's lots of courses which are list, listed. Um, we, we, as a social enterprise, we work with uh, 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 approved instructors who uh, work across the country. Um, and so, uh, you know, at the moment, there's obviously online um, courses which are uh, now available, and those will continue to be available, you know, whatever happens. But as social distancing measures uh, 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 shift and change, there may also be face-to-face uh, -face courses available um, in people's local areas. But lots of that information all on the website, mhfaengland.org. And, and on this sort of lockdown and, and, and all that we're going through, Simon, have you found greater demand at the moment for uh, resource and courses and content being, being utilised by people? Definitely, we know that more and more people are accessing information about mental health and well-being. We produce guidance about working from home uh, and you know, the number of downloads on that, I don't have to figure off the top of my head, but was you know, enormous and, and higher than you would ordinarily expect for single pieces of guidance. Colleagues working across mental health organisations, whether it's Young Minds, the Mental Health Foundation, Centre for Mental Health, Mind, they've all, you know, people accessing information. I think it's really powerful and, and, and important that people are recognising the importance around mental health at the moment. Um, clearly, yeah, there was, a, there was a, a time when actual access to training, because so much of it was face-to-face, -face, there was some limitation. But what we are seeing is, you know, really strong appetite to continue to support people's mental health to access training to be mental health first aiders uh, which is which is great I think you know one of the there are moments in time and this moment in time to my mind at least will always be one where we had a crash course in emotional literacy doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you live it doesn't matter what your job is or whether you talked about mental health at all before we've all checked in with ourselves and with each other and our family and our friends and our colleagues more than we've ever done before. And we, and we can't go back from that. You know, it's, it's, it defi this, this period, I think, is defining a, uh, yeah, it's been a crash course in emotional literacy. Um, and it's been a defining moment in, I think, what the future could look like if we all get better at talking about this stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, myself, Danny, and um, the other guy who runs this podcast with us, and we always try, and we've seemed to make more of a conscious effort recently to ask how each other are and, and how we're doing, and, and hopefully that will continue into the future. On on your website, I think I read that uh, that the course started in Australia in, in the year two thousand, and it's licensed in around twenty five different countries. Do you have any sort of data or insight on, on how England fares in terms of global standards? Are we are we doing well on the mental health front? I know there's lots of different variables culturally and what, what else goes on with it within each different country, but are, is it something we seem to be doing well at or is are we maybe behind some of the other countries? Um, it's a very, very good question. I mean, what all countries have in common is stigma. Uh, what all countries have in common is that mental health and mental illness yeah, exists in uh, throughout populations, and that 
whilst anybody can be affected by poor mental health, that it disproportionately um, affects um, people who experience social, economic uh, uh, inequalities, and and you know mental health is an, you know both a cause and uh, uh, of con and consequence of, of of inequalities. So, if you look at our health system, you know in many ways, you know we've got free at the point of access, but we've also got awful waiting lists. In other countries, it's not free at the point of access, but you may be able to get access more quickly. So. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I don't have hard and fast data uh, at my fingertips, but what I would just say is, you know, that there are some things that we do um, uh, well. You know, Every Mind Matters, the um, Public Health England um, NHS uh, prevention app is groundbreaking. Um, and, and we are, you know, we're moving in the right direction, despite all of the challenges uh, that, the UK you know, is getting better at addressing mental health. You know, that, that uh, mantra of no health without mental health is definitely something which I think is becoming part of the psyche. Even if there is not enough money, there's not enough resources, there's still loads that we can do. Uh, but you know, we, there's, a, there's a lot that we can be proud of and pleased about. No, that, that's great to hear. Uh, th thank you for answering that. I know that wasn't very straightforward one to answer, but it, it's good that I think, like anything, it, it, the, the want's got to be there. And hopefully over time, the rest will follow. And if, if the attitude towards tackling it head on is is there, then I'm, I'm sure um, we'll continue to do great work and organisations like, like your own will continue in the right direction. Your organisation's vision is stated as to improve the mental health of the nation and that you want to create a society where everyone can thrive and where mental health can, only, can be openly discussed and supported. Do you think you're getting closer to that goal? And you've just touched on it a little bit there, but where do you think sort of the pitfalls are and, and what we're doing really well are? Are we getting closer towards that goal? I think there's absolutely no doubt that things are shifting and getting uh, uh, and improving uh, you know, uh, slightly. We know that you know, if you think about the public profile uh, of mental health with the royals, with celebrities, uh, with uh, investment uh, you know, in, in, in services, you know, there, is, there is no doubt that there's a shift. We're having this conversation. We wouldn't have been doing this uh, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, so are we moving closer towards it um, we're moving closer towards a society that is more open about mental health we've clearly got much more we need to do to be truly you know mentally healthy to be literate to ensure that everybody's got uh, the help and support that they need but yeah I think we're we're, we're definitely moving um, in the right direction what that does mean however is of course we may well see um, higher levels of um, mental illness or poor mental health or sick days reported or whatever measures you take because as we come become better at understanding it we become better at reporting it recording it narrating it talking about it it can feel as though the problem is getting worse uh, or the issue is getting worse rather than than better and of course you know, being a, a literate society, being understanding mental health doesn't mean 
uh, eradicating poor mental health or eradicating mental illness. It means getting better at understanding, supporting, connecting, enabling, and 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 being community, yeah, being community focused um, around it. So, yes, I think we're getting better at being uh, a mentally healthy, literate society, um, but we've got an enormous way to go. And we, as I say, you know, we know that men may find it more difficult. We know that some communities uh, experience um, poorer mental health. We know that uh, black people are overrepresented in services. We know that trans people uh, are more likely to have suicidal feelings um, or attempt suicide or complete suicide. So there's a huge way that we've got to go and an understanding of inequalities has to be at the heart of that. That's a very interesting, um, I've never really looked at it like that, that the byproduct of almost getting better at dealing with mental health would be sort of in increased reports and numbers uh, just, just by the nature of more people being comfortable to come out or see seeing a doctor or a GP, that, that's very interesting. Um, what 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 do you think then? Uh, because as we know, there's a lot of strain on the NHS and a lot of services, and part of the problem for people can be they get put on a waiting list, and, and unfortunately, that list is is too long before they they may harm themselves or attempt to harm themselves. What what can the sort of average person on the street do to help, or somebody in your family that may not be qualified but has that instant connection to be able to to put themselves in a position where they can help? It's a really, really important question. And you know, part of the revolution that we need is all of us recognizing that this isn't something which is only the job of professionals. It's the job of all of us to support, to provide help, to intervene, uh, whether we're employers, whether we're partners, whether we're friends. There is all sorts of things that we can do and I and I guess it, the, the the most important thing is that we listen to our gut instinct you know I'm sure that you've been in times where you knew uh, that something uh, wasn't right and you may or may not have talked about it you know I you know been in all sorts of situations where you know I, I've known that somebody isn't okay I've asked them and I've asked them and I thought okay they're saying they're okay. I'm not convinced, but I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it. And 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 I guess what I would just say to everybody is, you know, if you ask somebody and they say they're okay, but your tummy tells you something different, ask again, um, and be really explicit. You know, I know that you say you're okay, um, but you know, there's just something about the way that you're holding yourself, the way that you're doing things differently, whatever it is that suggests to me that there isn't. Um, I'd like to be able to help. Let's go and have a coffee. Let's go and have a walk. And 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 there is only so much we can do as 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 people who are compassionate, empathic human beings. But that first bit of enabling people to know that you're there, that you want to have the conversation, you're not frightened of having the conversation, you don't think that they're weird, uh, is all just a really important part of it we know that sometimes people don't get help until it's too late or that they've yeah, they've waited such a long time for help and 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 those things are systemic issues in the health system but we have to get much better as a society at 
talking about things um, and encouraging people to recognize it's okay not to be okay, that we are comfortable with people being upset. We are comfortable with people being angry. We're comfortable with people being down um, or depressed and that we can we can lean into that and try to help them and put our arms around people figuratively, obviously in a socially distanced way in our current environment, but whatever it is um, that we can do and that we can help them to get support. You know, lots of us have employee assistance programs that don't recognize that they or don't know that they can provide counseling support or they can provide help for our partners. There's all sorts of different sort of services and support that is available that too often people don't know about or are too nervous about using. And you know, even if it's you know giving somebody your phone, having dialed the number to the Samaritans, you know, that is better than turning and walking away. I've you know I've done it my, myself. I have a friend who uh, said that they're okay. Um, I asked again, and I left knowing that they weren't. And and, and sadly, really sadly, they killed themselves. Um, uh, and I didn't know what to do at that time. Um, I didn't know that asking the question whether they were thinking about ending their life would be um, a, a, a sensible and important question. Um, to ask it felt it felt yeah you know, well, I just didn't know that that was what you did so I think there's some things we can all do to just get better equipped to have conversations about people's emotions about their feelings about their well-being um, and and if we can all do that uh, that's that's got to be good uh, for society yeah I think that's brilliant advice Simon it, it, it's advice anybody can, can take away just to to raise their own awareness <clears throat> Um, just to be able to, to, as you say, take somebody for a coffee or ask for a second time, are you sure you're okay if if you think something's up? Um, Like yourself, not that long ago, actually, somebody sort of in my immediate circle has fortunately committed suicide as well. And it's hard because it's everybody around them who who, who beats themselves up over it. And it's not an easy time for anybody. Um, Often there's times when there maybe isn't anything you could do, but if if you sort of remove that stigma that you're going to offend them by asking because often i find that people are too scared to ask are you having suicidal thoughts because they almost find it to be an offensive question to ask but you would almost rather ask the question and it turns out they aren't than not ask it and they were um so i think just opening up that conversation is huge and just finding a common interest as well like we try and say with with this podcast is use football as a vehicle, if, if you like art, use art as a vehicle, use whatever you're comfortable with as the vehicle to drive a conversation, but just get people talking, don't, don't make them feel like they're balancing them by themselves. One of the things that your the, the, the MHFA promotes quite a lot, Simon, is about uh, weight-life balance and, 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 and that type of thing. And I was reading um, a, a tweet that you did before uh, about when you spent some time off, you'd you knock the the work emails off your phone and and try to almost draw yourself back from it. How important do you think, obviously, in in kind of modern day society, that you know how easy it is to to get onto social media, to get onto your emails, to to never sort of put anything down? How much do you think there is a link between the sort of maybe the increase in 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 mental health problems and also that type of lifestyle that we now live in? 
So all the evidence shows that there is a link between this always-on culture and um, and and poor mental health, whether that's leaveism, uh, you know, presenteeism, uh, or, or or whatever it is. And I think it's a really important distinction which you make there, which is, you know, I took my emails off, and I had a really clear out of office on, which was I wasn't going to be looking at emails during uh, that week. And I didn't take my social media off. And on the first day, I got people saying, I've got you out of office, so I'm messaging you here. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay, I need an out of office on my Twitter direct message, on my Facebook messenger, and on LinkedIn, uh, and on Instagram. Uh, and, and obviously that doesn't exist yet. But for me, that ability to decompress properly is really, really fundamental. We know that, you know, that too many people say, I'm out of the office, I won't be looking at my emails, but they are because they respond to you. And as a leader, that doesn't do any good for your team because they need a break from you, they need empowerment, they need to know you trust them. You as a leader need to know that you are completely dispensable and therefore you don't need to be attached to your phone. And people need to trust that the organization um, is able to deal with any issues. And of course, most of us don't live in a, in a or work in a job that is the emergency services. So most things can wait. So for me, yeah, I, my first ever job, the, the, the Masculinity uh, Sex Education and Boys Project in South Wales, I didn't have uh, 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 my personal email and I would go on holiday and come back and there'd be a few messages in the phone book and a few letters. And of course, there's a, a difference between the, the role that I have now and the role that I had then. But that ability to go away and take a proper break is really important for our brain. No matter what anybody tells you that they want to just check in for an hour or so each day, um, I fundamentally believe that we need to just have a break. <laughs> yeah. And I will always advocate having a break. And I will, um, yeah, and I, I'm keeping my emails off my phone um, uh, because, you know, I've gone for a couple of walks over the last few days without looking at emails. Um, I've not looked at email before. I've done, I do exercise class every morning. Um, I've not looked at my emails before I've done that. And once my laptop goes down, um, I've not looked at it last thing before I go to bed. And, and you know, when someone's sending an email, they don't know when you're going to look at it. But actually, it, it can create you know, a, a, a thought, an anxiety, a question, um, which can impact on your sleep. So I'm sticking with it. No, mo no, no emails on the phone. I'm sticking to the laptop. And uh, I'll be advocating um, all the way through for people um, taking the holiday uh and not having their emails i think it's really important yeah i agree completely it's it's so easy to fall into that trap isn't it of just while you're sitting on your phone flicking onto your emails and before you know it you i mean i used to i used to have a I, I've, I've gotten better at it over the years but i used to end up in in you just end up just flicking onto them at sort of eight nine o'clock at night as you were sat down sat down waiting for you know adverts to finish on the telly or something or you're in the car going somewhere and then you'd read an email that you'd be, and I'd read something that would that'd annoy me a little bit, and then I'd be a bit like, oh, I'm just in a rubbish mood now. And then, and it's like, there's nothing I can do about it now anyway. So, um, 
There was. A, I don't know if you've ever heard of a woman called um, Ellie Johnson who wrote uh, a book about uh, anxiety, which is called How Not to Be Good. And I went to a uh, a talk that she did with uh, a friend of hers who who <laughs> he talked about that type of thing about that the stresses of of work outside of work almost. And he said once, I think he was a I think he was a teacher. I think that's what his job was. And he he basically said that he had two hundred and fifty emails in his inbox one morning when he'd he'd been off for a few days. And he said he looked at them and he just hit select all and deleted all of them. <laughs> and he said it was the, like the most freeing experience he'd ever had. And he said and and his kind of justification was if it's that important they'll ask it someone will ask it again or they'll phone me. Or they'll ask me while I'm while I'm around the place, he said. But it, it's almost like one of those things where because everyone's so accessible, it makes things that maybe aren't that important seem very important. Uh, absolutely, and and I, and I yeah, I mean I I have been known on occasion to do similar actually um, <laughs> because when you spend three hours going through emails and you find that of all of those, actually only 10 minutes were, were really, really important. And I think, what are we doing with our lives? And you know, email and, uh, and laptops and IT and digital were supposed to make lives better. But there is a question which I think we have to fundamentally ask ourselves, which is how many of the things which we need to do and are on our priority list, do we get done in a day? And how many things do we do which don't help achieve our goals, but help achieve other people's goals, do we do by sitting at email and responding to email? And you know, clearly, I'm not suggesting that we never do anything that helps anybody else. But if you sit with your email with the pinger coming in from the right-hand side all of the time, which distracts you, which takes you away, we are essentially working somebody else's agenda a lot of the time and that may or may not be the right thing to do so uh yeah i'm i'm all for you know as long as we're clear with people actually i'm away for two weeks none of these emails are going to be read there's an automatic delete please send again on march the 14th or talk to x y or z in my absence you know we we could get much better with that yeah i agree I've actually done one of the um the, the MHFA courses. I did it last um last year with, with work. Um and it was I it was a really enjoyable couple of days. And one of one of the things you were talking about before, Simon, was about how even from a young age you were quite comfortable talking about topics that people didn't want to talk about. How do you think that we encourage people to get more comfortable talking about those topics? I mean, not just mental health, but you've obviously worked in sexual health. That's that's I would imagine is probably another one that people kind of avoid talking about. Um, health in general, I think people feel a bit uncomfortable around. Finance is probably another one, which obviously all of those contribute in different ways to physical and mental health. But how do we kind of encourage people to sort of get over that taboo and and and? and talk about things that are difficult to talk about. So it's interesting, isn't it? So if you look at your last sentence there, it's, um, how do we get them to talk about things which are difficult to talk about? And I, I guess the first thing is our mind shift, which is we may find them difficult to talk about, but they are not inherently 
difficult to talk about. You know, you think about the three-year-old who asked about how the baby got in mummy's tummy, um, you know, whether or not they uh, uh, need a full answer or not. They're not embarrassed um, about it. You ask, uh, you know, talk to, uh, my brother died a few years ago and my great niece uh, was never shy about talking um, about his his death in the way that some of the adults uh, were, uh, you know, HIV, um, you know, mental health, whatever it is, you that you'll you'll find that they may well be topics which some people find difficult, but they are not inherently difficult. So I think if you ever see anybody say it's a sensitive topic, um, I uh, and some people would call me a pedant or even belligerent sometimes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, would say it's actually not a sensitive issue. It's something that you find sensitive or it's not difficult in itself. It's something that you uh, 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 may it find, find difficult. So there's just something about, let's not categorize it as difficult. Let's at the very least categorize it as things that some people find difficult. And then um, it's talking about it. Yeah, that, that is, you know, culture is only defined by people. And people are defined um, by what they're willing to talk about, the culture that they're willing to, you know, the things that they're uh, willing to do. And, and, and so there is a, something you hear about really um, uh, thinking, let's take a deep breath. We may not have all the answers. You know, you talked about, you know, talking to friends about mental health or whatever it is. You know, we don't have to have the answer in order to be willing to have the conversation. Uh, we don't, you know, if somebody else feels uh, uh, offended that you're willing to, you know, think about parents of, of gay children, you know, in the in the 80s, that sort of bit of, yeah, I'm not ashamed, you may find it shameful, you know, all sorts of campaigns that happen. So I think it's encouraging children and young people to keep talking, because whenever you talk to children, young people, they seem to be better at these things than uh, than older generations. Um, not allowing people to categorize things as problematic or difficult or sensitive. Um, and then when you find it easier, always, always talking about it um, and, and encouraging people to, to talk about it and acknowledging that some people find it difficult, but saying, yeah, it doesn't do any shame and guilt, uh, never did anybody any, any good. And yeah. so let's, let's, the only way that shame and guilt thrive is by uh, keeping secrets, you know, and, and keeping secrets and not talking about things. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in danger of repeating myself, but just <laughs> keep talking about things because uh, that's the way to, to, to break stigma, to make things usual, to make things um, important. I'm reminded of something that... Um somebody said and i can't remember what it was but they they would they was talking about how they didn't like the the use of the word stigma um around mental health it was because he, he kind of felt as though it was like confirmation bias like if you keep saying something to stigma then it will become a stigma or it remains a stigma rather than than you know if you don't mention that it's a stigma then it it won't be a stigma because people won't think about it like that so i suppose it's kind of like that isn't it the uh the, the the use of language is important with that type of thing and and whilst it might not feel like it it's almost like death by a thousand cuts isn't it like if you keep hearing it over and over again then it'll subconsciously become that thing within your head 
one thing that we wanted to to pick up with the assignment was about the blog post that was put out about promise on on progress, which was sort of came on the back of the the recent Black Lives Matter um, movements that have been seen in the UK and the US and, and most parts of the world, particularly with reference to the statement about taking down the uh, the resources around the Black Dog. Could you just kind of talk us through the the decision making around that? Sure. So for those who don't know, the Black Dog is a video about depression and it's a really powerful video which lots of people have found has had a big impact. But the Black Dog is the metaphor for depression. And prior to the killing of George Floyd, a number of people had talked to me about whether that video was one which should be used because it the 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 term black uh, and the connotation of a black dog um, and black being negatively associated in language or as a metaphor um, has been perpetuated throughout history in Western cultures. And so the decision I made was to say we would no longer use the black dog video um, in our courses because um, people of colour and black uh, instructors had said, you know, we don't talk about race, we don't talk about uh, uh, whiteness um, on the course. And the this video um, is one of those uh, uh, in, in detail. And this video um, reinforces negative connotations. And so decision was made that uh, we should remove that video and that we would find uh, other uh, videos that could explain um, depression uh, and the experience of depression um, uh, in in alternative ways. Uh, and we will consider whether we need to commission and find a new way to do so. Some people have said that they are troubled by that uh, because it's a video that they found has had impact and uh, or because they don't understand uh, that uh, it has a negative uh, connotation or impact on uh, people of color um, and and black people um, and and my response to that is you know for for me and in the newsletter which we sent out to instructor members I acknowledge that you know it hadn't I had not connected uh, it before with um, historical racism historical negative uh, connotations yeah, I'm a white man. I'm a dog lover. You know, I'd seen um, you know this the, the black dog, but I accept and 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 I'm really happy to uh, acknowledge my privilege um, of not having uh, uh, understood it in that way, and therefore wanting to remove it from uh, from our from our suite of videos. Um, and some people are not happy with that decision. And I stand by it. It it's interesting, really, Sam, because I think it's. It must be a really uh, a complicated, quite thorny issue for an organisation like yourselves to to try and kind of get around because it's. I, I must admit, it's. I think one of the one of the things that seems to have, to have come out of the, the the Black Lives Matter movement recently and and the, the sort of stuff that's that's come off it is that it's allowed people, I think, to ask some questions of things and of themselves that may not have been asked before. Do you do you have any concern with with 
with this that it sets a precedent for what you may or may not have as content in the future? So my commitment is that we will be an anti-racist organization. And if there are things which we need to remove, that we need to review, that we need to understand differently, not if, there will be things that we need to understand differently, that we need to review, that we need to renew. Um, and that may not be comfortable for people who've had the privilege of not being affected by race and racism. Um, and that's part of our, our change journey. That's part of our um, uh, uh, process that we need to go on to dismantle systemic racism. Uh, and, and I am really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I'm really comfortable with leading with empathy, with listening, with trying to understand things differently because doing that is the only responsible thing to do and however uncomfortable I might ever feel it's nothing compared to uh, the impact of systemic racism and, and 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 the histories which we have and and we can't we can't change history by doing things by changing history we can only change history by understanding and changing things for the future and I want to be part of that I want to do it and if I uh, uh, whatever I can do I'm gonna do it were you met with any resistance at all to that decision in, internally so there are some people who have asked uh, questions who've answered so no no resistance internally uh, we have a you know a, a culture in which you would hope that people would ask questions um, and that uh, people uh, you know, there's learning um, and there is uh, uh, resisting and there's talking and there's um, understanding moving forward. There are some people in the instructor community who've contacted me who um, are not happy with the decision. Um, and yeah, that's part of, of, of navigating the, the, the process. I, I, I don't believe that we, um, we, we, will make the change that is necessary only by doing the things which are easy. Um, and therefore we have to, I have to as a white leader, take responsibility for doing things which some people may resist, some people may find difficult. Um, and you know, I, there are all sorts of people who are angry or upset or confused or don't understand. Um, and that's part of the journey we have to go on to educate ourselves, to understand and to, to make changes for a fair and equitable society. Yeah, I think um, I think it's admirable that you've that you've taken that step, Simon. I mean, personally, I, I I must admit I'm quite confused on a lot of this of of a lot of these type of things in terms of I'm not sure how I feel about lots of the lots of the these type of uh, almost symbols and that sort of thing. I mean, we had a, I had a conversation the other day which was about around the the statues and the street names and that sort of thing, and I could re I, I could really recognise the symbolism in that. Um, but equally, I think the easy thing for somebody like you in your position to do would be to kind of shy away from it. So to have, have, have fronted it up like you've done, I think, is really impressive. To 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 be engaging in that conversation, I think that's the most important thing that everyone can do. 
Um, I suppose on the back of that then would be the Mental Health Awareness Week theme this year was around kindness. And I saw you tweeting about challenging people on Twitter to be kinder to one another, Mm. which is probably a really important message around that same subject. I actually had a a conversation last night where we were talking about how men could do, um, do with being nicer to one another and being more complimentary of one another. How important is that to be kind of, you know, actively aware of, of, of being nice, essentially? So it's a really interesting one, isn't it? So I often when people think about kindness, they think of it as a soft and fluffy uh, sort of thing. But, you know, making all of us in life have to make really difficult decisions and choices. And the way that you do that is is obviously uh, really, really uh, significant. Why? Yeah, I just believe that uh, we are in a in a, a period of time where, with everything that's going on, the best that we can do is try to have empathy, try to understand. It links to your last question. I don't have to know and understand everything. I just have to listen and believe that people uh, uh, are people's experience and and respond accordingly and i think there are too many people who center themselves rather than listen and try to truly hear so yeah the 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 whole bit about mental health awareness week and being kind was was recognizing that you know being kind to other people impacts your mental health positively when someone is kind to you it impacts your mental health positively. And 70% of people in a survey by the Mental Health Foundation said that they hope that we come through uh, a kinder society, uh, come through COVID-19 as a kinder society. So I guess I would say uh, we all need to step away from our keyboards sometimes. We all need to perhaps have a little less desire to make everybody think like us, believe, like us and a willingness to uh, accept that not everybody does. But in that, also believing that you don't have to be horrible uh, to people. You don't have to be unkind to people. You don't have to try to, to erase their, their experiences. And, and all of those things are possible. You know, I, I have a very strong value set and moral compass about yeah, everybody having the right to live their lives free from prejudice and discrimination. And some people will say to me all the time, you know, that actually it's not possible to do that because it erases certain people's rights if other people get rights. I just don't believe that's true. I believe that you know, we can all live in a way where we can live side by side with comfort and understanding. And of course, some people will do horrible things, but overall, unless we're willing to be empathic, to understand, to want to live together side by side, then, yeah, we, we, we've really got to make some fundamental shifts if that's not where we are now. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you, Simon. I think it's, 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 it's a, again, it's another one of those, those difficult conversations, isn't it, about what is and isn't free speech, I suppose, in a way. But I, I agree with you. I just, I think we've lost the sense of, you know, in people almost trying to protect their right to be able to express themselves. 
people have forgotten other people's right to not be given abuse, essentially, on the on the flip side of it. So it, I agree with you. It kind of moves us on nicely to the work that you do with, with Stonewall. For people who don't know who and what Stonewall are, would you mind just giving us a, a kind of brief overview? Sure. Stonewall was set up in um, the 1989 uh, to it's a, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender charity um, across the UK, um, and has led the charge for um, LGBT uh, equality. Originally set up around LGB, LGB um, issues um, in the light of Section 28, which was around teaching around homosexuality in schools. Done work around equalising the age of consent, around equality in the workplace equality in sport, uh, equality, equal marriage, uh, adoption. You know, Stonewall has been at the forefront of so many of the changes which have been there, uh, uh, have happened for LGB. Uh, and more recently, you know, over the last five years, uh, for trans people um, as well, it's, you know, it really is a, a national treasure in terms of the work that's done around equality. Um. How and it's responsible for the football laces as well. Uh, yeah. The rainbow laces in football, of course. So, yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think I think that the, the lace has been a particularly successful. Um, what would you say? A, a campaign that they that they've done has been it, visually. It's it's been very successful. Um, in terms of yourself, then Simon, how and when and why did you get involved? So um, I'm a gay man. Uh, I'm almost, I'm, I'm 46. Uh, and so I was 14 when Section 28 came in. I was sort of 12, 13 when uh, really, really started understanding the scale and impact of the HIV epidemic. Um, and growing up in the, the light of, you know, pre-social media, so all I saw was the Daily Mail um, and Sun talking about you know, these awful gay blokes, uh, as it generally was, who were you know, uh, dying of this uh, uh, disease, which was a result of sexual immorality uh, and uh, predatory on children, shouldn't be teachers. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, a horrible um, environment to grow up in. I was also in Cornwall, you know, in a rural area, so you know, genuinely thought I was the only gay kid in the village in the town you know, in the county probably um and yeah probably um without necessarily always quantifying that that shaped you know so much of my uh adult life around equality uh for everybody because actually feeling like the odd um one out actually feeling like the horrible person uh, and not being able to get away from that person is is damaging to your to your psyche to your sense of self um and whilst yeah i'm 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 lucky enough that you know now have reached the point of liking myself and 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 trusting myself and and a level of confidence you know that sense of you know of, of, of inequality and of injustice i think definitely stays with me so I was chair of Diversity Role Models before, which is an organisation which takes um, people into uh, LGBT role models into school to talk about you know, being human and being LGBT and, and then uh, became a trustee of Stonewall. And so many people will say the fight for equality is, is, is done. And 
yeah, we know with uh, particularly at the moment the the horrible debate about the right of trans people to exist. We know yeah that LGBT people who are black or uh, people of color, you know, and the racism that exists within society and then within LGBT plus communities as well. There's so much that has to be done and Stonewall's got an enormous job to do in partnership with a range of other community organizations. So I've got one year uh, left as a trustee um, and uh, yeah, the, the work feels as important as it did in 1988. Different work, but as important and certainly as important as it did in 2015. And obviously, the, you'll obviously be aware of this, Simon, but the, the statistics for um, people who would uh, be members of the, the LGBT community for having uh, issues with mental ill health are, are higher than than are for uh, heterosexual people. Do you think that's kind of related to issues with prejudice and identity and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that oppression, prejudice, uh, the experience of being bullied, of being hurt, uh, impacts on people's mental health. If you imagine you know, being um, a black child or being a gay child or being a trans child or uh, being a disabled child and being told that you're not good enough and at the point at which your sense of self is developing and you know no matter what people say to you you can't get away from yourself and so those stages of development the impact of racism of, of homophobia of transphobia have, has to impact on people's well-being has to impact on on mental health and yeah that 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 is an undeniable fact when you look at people who experience prejudice and inequality uh, there are poorer mental health outcomes, and you know, it has to shift. It's just, yeah, you know, it's just not good enough. And in terms of 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 your experience, you mentioned there about how a lot of people's kind of perception of it is that you know, with regards to LGBT and for and for gay rights and 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 you know, having gay marriage and that sort of thing, that almost like the battles won. If you see what I mean, how far away? Is are we from what would be deemed equality? So, yeah, if you look at equality in the law, we are much uh, fairer than we were. Um, you'll, you know, depending on when this uh, podcast goes out, there's, yeah, there's, um, we're waiting on um, some uh, uh, um, government to report back on the consultation on. Um, the Gender uh, Recognition uh, Act reform, um, and we're worried that there will be a rollback on the rights of trans people, which were established you know, 20, uh, almost 20 years ago. But whatever the legislation says, the reality is that there are kids who are in the corner of the playground now who are being bullied and are being hurt. There are people who are in lockdown who are with families who are um, either unaware uh, of their identity or are hurting them because of their um, identity. Um, and so that sort of gap between what the law says or what social norms may be and between true equality yeah, is enormous. You know, I 
uh, would never walk down the street holding hands with my husband of 10 years uh, because it wouldn't be safe to do so in most parts of London, which is one of the most metropolitan cities in one of the most liberal countries um, in the world. So, yeah, we've got countries where uh, over 60 countries where it's illegal. We've got countries where the death sentence is still applicable. Uh, and so, yeah, if you look at it as a, 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 a yeah, we had three gay people killed um, only two weeks ago. Uh, yeah, we have uh, women uh, being um, beaten on buses uh, in this last year. We've got hate crime, which is rising. Um, so for all the platitudes which may exist about um, it's more equal, the reality of people's lived experience is that it still is unsafe, that they still don't uh, feel able to be open at work, that there are still norms which are expected to 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 live by so you know true equality is where everybody is able to live their whole self without fear of discrimination without fear of harm so unfortunately i think i'm going to be dead way before <laughs> that that is achieved but uh yeah we like everything it's great and it's really important to celebrate progress but let's not be fooled by the fact or conned by the fact that we've made some legislative progress that, you know, I live in a nice house and I've got a nice partner and my parents accept me and more to do with uh, the, um, uh, the, the whole um, reality of people's uh, existence and, uh, and what it feels like to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. That um, that thing you just said there, Simon, about not wouldn't feel comfortable uh, in certain parts of London holding your husband's hand that made I, doesn't shock me. But I don't think I, I, I suppose if you don't live it, 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 the reality of it probably doesn't doesn't kind of present itself in that way. I, I, one thing I've I've always been been quite interested in, and, and one thing I'd, I'd like to hear your, your get your opinion on. You know, when we talk about, and, and it goes for race and for gender and for sexuality and for all different types of things, when we talk about acceptance, I often wonder if 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 the semantics of using that word don't feel right in terms of, if, if you know, if we talk about the society as being accepting and, 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 and a, a society as being welcoming and, and that type of, it almost feels like people are, are doing people who are from minorities a favor by like letting them in do you know what i mean and i always wonder if the semantics of that are, are maybe part of the issue i mean when everyone says i um we're tolerant my eyebrows yeah, my eyes roll so yeah. <laughs> noisily that you know it's almost impossible to stop them clanging uh the um the bit which Acceptance, I'll, I'll live with actually, because you know, accepting uh, feels like it's it's better than tolerating. Um, but you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we welcome and we celebrate and we trust? Actually, I think is probably uh, the word that we trust that people who are not like us are equal to us and valid, and we don't question uh, them. And you know. That is a, we're a long way from that, but yeah, except I will 
I'll accept, accept. I won't tolerate, tolerate. <laughs> and I look welcome. I well look forward to celebrating celebration. You know, um, uh, you know, is 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 probably where where I would sit. But Stonewall's Stonewall strapline is acceptance without exception. And I think that you know, if we could honestly say that everyone was accepted for who they are without exception, that we would be moved to such a better place than where we where we currently are, which is all you know, that sort of bit of oh you don't seem gay or oh you don't seem trans or oh you speak you know incredibly well or whatever it is, you know, we've got to move away from that sort of sense of uh what I understand and and think about what is right and normal and acceptable um, is is the view of the world. And to get, you know, the world is a much better place because of the diversity of human spirit within it. And it saddens me that people who are not open to people from different countries with different experiences, with different identities, don't ever really get the full benefit of of human energy and spirit and and joy that is possible if you just say uh yeah i'm, I'm gonna welcome this with open arms <laughs> all of it <laughs> yeah I, I i yeah i i i i agree with you simon and i think yeah the the tolerate word is it's one of those that you hear all the time and it almost always makes me kind of you know when you hear a word and it makes you kind of jolt because you just think it just doesn't sit right um so yeah so that 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 was really interesting i one one last thing i'd really like to ask simon then is it sits you seem like the type of person who's very as you say you, you're very comfortable talking about topics that are that are that are potentially difficult for other people and very open in your approach to different types of people and people from different backgrounds but in terms of since you've been working with MHFA and, and and obviously with reference to mental health, do you feel as though you've changed your approach to your own mental health since you've been working with MHFA? And do you think that even given your position and, and, and given the type of person that you are, that, that you look after your mental health well enough? So it's a really interesting question and I... I think it's an important question because we are generally not good enough at checking in with and understanding how we feel, I think. And I am lucky uh, in that, yeah, obviously I've had ups and downs and, and, and times which have been challenging, but overall I've lived um, you know, a life of, 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 of privilege in terms of my mental well-being. Um, well, privilege in all sorts of ways, but in relation to my mental well-being. So I've never had to think about mental health too much, to be honest, because uh, of, of, of my personality and my lived experience of, of, of being mentally and physically well. So what being at MHFA England has done is made me understand much more about mental health and about well-being and about some of the things which I intuitively did anyway. I've always been very good um, at doing things. I, yeah, I, I, I have very strong affinity with animals and, and horse riding and I've always done that and it's always been a very strong plank of what keeps me happy. I'd never connected it to self-care and to well-being and to understanding quite how much it gave me a break from work and from, from life and 
So I think what has happened at Mental Health First Aid England is I've become conscious of the things that I was good at and tried to do more of them, conscious of the things that I was bad at and tried to do less of them, sometimes with success and and other times with less success. Um, And am I good enough at at self-care? I'm good at certain bits of it. uh, And uh, that includes, you know, hobbies taking breaks at weekend um good holidays time with friends less good at digital so you said about taking my email off my phone that was a really big deal um for me um i also now leave my phone at home on sundays if we go out in order that i don't get distracted by it so all sorts of things you know and, and mhfa is i think that looking after yourself is a learning journey isn't it and and always needs to be a learning journey you know, I'm starting to approach 50 now. I need to look after my physical health and my mental health probably in a bit more than I did when I was 30, which means that I need to drink a bit less alcohol now, that I need to eat a bit better, that I need to exercise um, a bit more or could helpfully do all of those things. So, yeah, it's a learning journey. Um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a fly on the wall, you'd be like, some days he's amazing. Some days he's really rubbish. Um, and... Uh, what I guess I'm getting better at is accepting the days I'm amazing and celebrating those and accepting the days I'm awful and not using that as an approach to just spiral into awful for a long time. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Simon Blake. I've still got Ryan and Ant with me. I don't know if either of you noticed it, but we had another mention of Ruby Wax in there. That's two in the space of a few weeks. We had one on the on the Rick Edwards episode, another little shout for Ruby Wax. It's only a matter of time before Ruby Wax is on the podcast, I think. It's kind of feel like we're, we're dropping hint bombs all over the gaff. Neither of you look that convinced that Ruby Wax is going to come on the podcast, do you? Um, I know she's she's a person. I can't remember what she does, though. Yeah, I. this is going to sound awful. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to check she's still alive. Just <laughs> Before we advise her on, um, it'd be an even live seance. She wasn't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, I mean, if if Ruby, if Ruby's listening, um, a lot of people are waxing lyrical about her. So come on. Anyway, so that, I mean, let's let's move on from that immediately. <laughs> let's absolutely move on from that. Um, so one of the things that Simon talked about in his uh, in his interview, which is something that we've touched on a few different times about variety of uh, about a variety of different topics, and primarily, I suppose, mental health, depression, suicide, anxiety, those type of things fall under this category as well. Is talking about topics that perhaps other people don't want to talk about, and Simon was was quite effusive in the fact that he'd long been someone who was comfortable talking about things that perhaps made other people uncomfortable. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that he mentioned was that positive affirmation thing of if you keep saying something is difficult or something's uncomfortable, it will make it uncomfortable. So in the same way that we talk about mental health being a stigma, it will become a stigma if we keep saying it's a stigma. So maybe we should just stop saying it's a stigma. I don't know if either of you had any thoughts on that because I thought that was particularly interesting. And I'm going to come to you, mate. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense to me. And if you're going to, think something's really difficult and really hard it's it's going to get in your head and then it's going to be really difficult and really hard um yeah it, a lot of people go go down that route about you know too much to talk about not in the right moments normally isn't it not the right time to talk about it um i don't know why we need to attribute a right place and time to talk about these things um 
you know, mental health kind of affects you every hour during the day in, in a really bad spot. So I don't really know why why you need a, a perfect time or a place to talk about it. I can understand the place maybe if you if you, if you need to go and speak to someone that you trust and, and stuff like that. So that might be right, but I think it needs to be done at any time during the day, really. I don't think that's a good enough excuse to, to not talk about it. So. I, uh, yeah, I think it's about I like making those agree. topics like part of like natural day to day discourse, isn't it? Really, I think yeah. people will avoid them, and and you can understand why. And I think we will all have done it before. Is you can feel a difficult topic or someone feel uncomfortable about a topic, and you and obviously there are time and a place for a lot of these things, as you say. In terms of if somebody's clearly not wanting to speak about something, you can't force it on them. But I do think, as you say, and that it's it's important to try and make those topics and those things kind of something that people are talking about without having to consciously think about talking about them i don't know if you picked up on anything similar to that sort of that thread ryan when we were speaking to simon i thought it was quite an interesting way of looking at it yeah i think as well it's quite cultural so within this country i was having to think about this because we did ask him about um the the sort of standardized training that happens across the globe because it is i think this this it did originate from australia um and i think it's in about 20 25 different countries the, the course that they offer the mental health first aid and just sort of as a society we're quite we like to queue we don't like to complain we don't like to ring up and book things we don't like to we're quite insular in how we act and behave and i think probably there needs to be a shift in in, in how open we are across the board to then open up being comfortable about difficult situations. I think it's fantastic uh, that Simon said he's, he's he's good at talking about the uncomfortable subjects, but I think for most people, they're not. And he really understood that and he, he, he was aware that he's probably different than others in how comfortable he is talking about those subjects. So I suppose the question then is, well, how do you make people or how do you get people to feel more comfortable, which is kind of the million dollar question really because there's no easy way to do it really is to, mm. to get people to feel comfortable and I do kind of think the way we are in society we're quite an quite awkward nation someone drops a glass in a pub you go way because you just feel awkward <laughs> and I, I do think I do think that's in how a lot of us act and I do think that then does show when when serious matters come up because you don't really know how to approach them and he, he had that situation in his life where he said, I walked away from a conversation when I knew somebody wasn't right. And uh, unfortunately, they went on to lose their life. And I think that stuck with him. And I think it's stories like that that remind you how important it is to discuss the, the things you don't want to discuss because it can be a matter of life and death at the, the worst end of the scale. So, yeah, I think once we, once we get more comfortable being uncomfortable, the better. Uh, I suppose it's, it's how to do that, and maybe it's starting a conversation earlier. It's getting into education, it's having those conversations with your your family and your network, and maybe doing those things at home first before you go out and try and do them in the wider world. I think that's a good point that you make there because I suspect it's the type of thing that might be generational. So generations before ours were maybe taught not to talk about things like sex, relationships, mental health, whatever it might be. And if every generation just gets a little bit better and a little bit better at it and passes it on to the next one to encourage people to be open and talking about things that they're thinking and feeling about. I was, weirdly enough, on Friday evening, I was watching, there was there's a program on Channel 4 called Sex Tape. I don't know if either of you have ever watched it. 
I'd never watched it before until I came across it on Friday. And I purely came across it because I was skipping through. In fact, I don't even think it was on Channel 4. I think it was on like 4, 4, um, E4. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, E4s, you know, like what BBC3 would have been previously. Um, But so it was on one of those kind of Channel 136 at like 11 o'clock on a Friday evening. I only just stumbled across it because there was nothing on. And it was it was weird because I was like, oh, what's this? This looks weird. And then it was basically they had three couples in the room and they kind of filmed them like having sex and then would show that the difficulties that they were having in connecting physically and then how that was reflected in maybe some problems they were having in the relationship. And they had like a therapist on and they do like a group therapy session with it. And it was really interesting. But the way they obviously sold the program was like titillation. It was like, oh, look at this. There's going to be some people getting jiggy on the screen, which I'll admit was why I clicked on it in the first place. But <laughs> I just thought I was watching it and I was thinking, this is like a really healthy, adult, mature conversation that you very rarely see about sex and about relationships on the television. In that they're, everyone's have will have those difficult situations. And Simon, when we had him on, he worked for um, Brooke, which is the the um sexual the, like, sexual health charity on the brook we've got one on on the whittle and it's the type of stuff again that people don't really want to talk about because they're kind of embarrassed about it for whatever reason and again that's probably generational but i just thought it was interesting that it was a program like that that i thought this is this is the type of thing that should be on like prime time television and it should be taught to people to open up and have those type of conversations about their relationships with the people that are closest to them because a lot of the problems between all those couples were that they just went talking to one another and i just thought this is the type of thing that's shoved on like a friday night at 11 o'clock when nobody's watching to, to because somebody's had the good idea to make this program but they don't want to put it front and center for whatever reason and they have to sell it in a certain way and i just kind of well, because we were preparing, obviously, for this episode, it just made me think about the type of thing that, well, no wonder people don't want to talk about sex and relationships and, and, and the natural human things that go on day to day and, and in people's lives. Because where we're showing it in the media, it's shoved at the back page of a newspaper or it, it's shoved at 11 o'clock on, a, on, a, on an obscure TV channel. And you just think, I think that there needs to be, as you say, Ryan, maybe a bit of a societal switch into how we sort of approach these things. You also talked there, Ryan, about the um, the incident that Simon talked about where he had a friend who was he knew wasn't okay and he wasn't really sure how to deal with it and he walked away from that situation and his friend sadly took their own life. And one sort of theme that came up and, and it was sort of the, 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 the primary theme for us with this episode was talking about being willing to listen even if you don't know what the answers are and mental health first aid mhfa england their course that's primarily what it teaches you so about two years ago i did that course um through uh, the mind map which is a, a local mental health organization run by a friend of ours called phil bridges and that's almost fundamentally the whole course is just about teaching you how to listen and not feeling as though you have to give advice and i think that's the biggest difficulty for a lot of people isn't it yeah, I think uh, one of the things go on around you, say you you see smoke coming from someone's back garden, you might not know what, what it is. Is it someone having a barbecue or is there generally a fire? So you might ring the fire brigade, you hear a disturbance, you might not know what it is, you might ring 111. And we don't really do that when people seem to be in mental distress or mental anguish. We don't really know what to do, so we kind of go, well, that's not our problem. I can't get involved. It's personal to them. And mental health is very personal to, to an individual. 
So we, we kind of assume that we, we can play no role in, in their recovery or them tackling what might be going on because it's nothing to do with us. It might be related to something that want to be secretive about. But in reality, it's about raising an alarm in the same way you would if there was a physical issue going on around you. It's about making sure that that person gets help or making sure the people who are closest to that people know that they need help because sometimes those closest to them don't spot the signs because they're so ingrained in, in what goes on and they, they might have been feeling that way for six months so to them it seems normal and then your role you come along and you go well that's actually not normal behaviour that doesn't seem right so I think we can all play a part in, in raising the alarm and, and, and maybe maybe the person who's dealing with it doesn't really realise what's going on I think that's what's important we always assume that person suffering knows what's going on and no one around them knows when in fact they could be as confused as you. They might not know why they're feeling how they're feeling. They might not know why it started or how it started or even when they started feeling like that, they might just think, I'll wake up every day like this now. I can't even remember. It's been so long. So I think I think we do need to make sure that, and I think I said this in the interview, it's better to offend them by asking and being wrong than it is to not ask and be right. Yes. And... I think that is something we all need to do. And regular checkups are great and asking more than once. We, we all know those things, but how far can you take it? You've got to ask yourself, how far am I willing to take it if I'm concerned about somebody? Do I ring the parents? Do I, do I ring the spouse? What, what do I do? And I think we need to do as much as we can. I think we, we talked about we a lot on this podcast and it's it's our hashtag, which is where the, where's the talking, lads? And we talk a lot about talking and the importance of talking and opening up, which often puts the sort of... The, the, the emphasis of the responsibility upon the person who needs to open up or could open up. And a lot of the the, 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 the sort of, I suppose, the, the other side of that would be the importance of listening and how important it is for people to be able to listen. And I suppose then what I would what I would kind of ask to you then is, you can you understand why people would feel in a position where they know somebody's having some trouble or suffering and they, they may be thinking about asking that question is it going to prompt some kind of response that's going to be difficult for me to have to deal with them? I, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know what the answers are. I'm not equipped to deal with this. You can imagine why a lot of people might feel that way, which may stop people from from, from, from asking that question in the first place because they may not know how to deal with the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the best will in the world, like we're not, we're not, we're not people who are able to deal with that. Me, you and Ryan aren't. Um, obviously, you've got more more knowledge about it than, than we have at the moment. But I can understand why people would be scared of the reaction, but I think most of it, in my experience, if you ask those questions and haven't given those answers out myself when I, when I've been asked them, I kind of come to the the answers myself. I just need someone to just sit there and listen. So I, I can understand why people don't want to do it because it, it, it's. I don't think it's to do with the topic. I think it's to do with the. It might be the pressure that they put on themselves to to help. You know, what is help? Well, help doesn't necessarily mean I need to look after you day to day and and go down that route. It might just be I just need to sit here and listen. And like you like you've been saying, so I can understand, completely understand. I think people need to realise that it will still just be a conversation. There are obviously uh, extreme elements to that, and I can understand why people wouldn't want to get involved in that because they might not have the certain expertise, but certainly they could notice stuff and become more aware of the the signs around those people if 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 they 
see them they can certainly alert people and and know the kind of pathways to go down the routes to go down that only comes from at the moment i think it only comes from a vested interest for, for most people hopefully in the future it'll come from just naturally being able to know that um probably through people talking more about it through more signposting about it through more adverts about it you know everything to do with that and could come from education as well um you know often i think i remember in um in our planners in school we were given um like numbers and helplines and stuff in the back of the planners so the, the information's there for for stuff like that as well so I, I assume that might be starting to be incorporated and people will get a little bit more comfortable understanding what those numbers and those websites and those help services are so that would be quite quite a good thing but yeah at the moment i, I can see why why people are scared of it. it is a scary thing it's 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 difficult but if you've got a relationship with those people then it shouldn't be as scary you can approach it in a way that you are friends you are relatives to those people you know related to those people so i can understand why it'd be scary to to ask a complete stranger what what's going on completely understand that and i, I don't think at the moment i would expect anyone to be able to go and deal with that um but yeah i can i can definitely see you could definitely spot the signs couldn't you um and i think that's going to become more and more um prevalent in, in society people will be able to go hang on that something's not quite right it's starting to happen in certainly in my work at the moment but having catch-up meetings of not just necessarily like what you're doing in work but looking outside and and, and saying you know have you can get an exercise this week have you can you know how are you actually feeling you know you can come and talk to us it's kind of a safe space so the comfortability as well which is a big thing so particularly for for work spaces um, yeah yeah so yeah it, i got i I'm I'm quite positive in, in we keep doing these things and and we'll get to a place where it becomes comes more regular, not normal. Like natural, yeah, yeah, like it, yeah. If it becomes part of the sort of natural day to day discourse that people say, "How are you?" You know, when you ask someone in work, "How are you doing?" You yeah. normally get the stock answer, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. How about how are you?" Whereas if we start maybe hearing, you know, this is going on, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a whole big thing. You know, it's not like you're sitting down, someone's having a counselling session with you. But if you ask someone how they are and they say that they're not all right, you say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm having a bit of a shit one at the moment because of this, this, and this. But, you know, it'll be fine. And you say, all right, Tom, if you need anything, just just give me a shout. And it, it, and those type of things are really simple. And it'd just be about incorporating those. But it, you can, it's understandable, isn't it, for people why you ask that question and you don't get the answer that you're expecting in terms of the stock answer of, yeah, I'm fine, or, yeah, sound thanks, how are you? then it might make people feel uncomfortable because they think, oh, God, I've got to have the answer here and I don't have the answer. But it's not about that. It's just about reminding people to be there to listen. All you have to do is listen. You don't need to come up with a solution for everything. Often with, you know, that and that question of how are you doing, the answer changes from whether you know that person really, really well mm. to whether you kind of know that person, but you're not, you've never shared that before. Mm. Um so if someone that you, you kind of know, that sort of like a work colleague, you don't really share that outside life with them, or comes and asks you, how are you feeling? And you say, yeah, I'm all right, I'm fine, even though deep down inside you're absolutely fuming. Yeah, but it yeah. might be the person that you share an office with asks you that same question who's seen you for 52 weeks of the year. And they ask you that question, you go, actually, I'm, I'm really just down, feel a bit negative, whatever it could be. It could obviously range from a, a varying different amount, couldn't it? But they might just give you that soundboard and they might just give you that different, 
like different outlook on it. You know, I'm fuming at, I know, say you, you've had a bit of a Barney with your missus or, you know, your partner, you, you, you could, you can get that like other angles to it. And often I've had that where you, where you come in, you fume and, and someone just takes the wind out of your sails by going, have you actually thought of it this way? And you're going, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I that does, that just change things. And you're like, all oh, right. Yeah. I get it now. You've, um, you touched on before there, Ant, about your workplace, maybe concentrating more on asking people how they are in their own, you know, how, how are you doing outside the work? You know, how's the, the sort of well-being aspect of it? And Simon, in his interview, was, you know, we asked him about how the pandemic had affected the way that people had interacted with MHFA and had there been more of an uptake for, for courses and for resources that they have. And, I, and I'd imagine perhaps the pandemic might be a bit of a watershed moment for people in thinking about how their outside life affects work and about what's going on outside the work, you know, the impact that it has when you're in work. And that, I think that's because we're all now collectively living through the same experience and everyone's basically doing exactly the same thing as everybody else. So I think people are conscious that it is a bit shit this, so it's probably a bit shit for other people as well. And I wonder yeah, and if that might help long term in people understanding the impact of, you know, yeah. their own life. Yeah, and I think for, for employers, I mean, a lot of them are working at home, aren't they? So they're not seeing them. So they've got to get in touch with them some way. Yeah. Um, and there's varying different opinions on, on whether, I imagine we have like three different ones here right now, whether working at home is good or not, or working in the office is good or not, or how we feel. So you can see how difficult it could be for them, but they've got to kind of get on top of, of, of knowing what each person's going through. You can't just go, oh, my team's fine. My team's all right when they could be absolutely snowed under and feeling terrible. So, And without seeing them every day. Yeah. Because a lot of the time you can see something with in, in, a, in a person, can't you? you know, yeah, like a change of behaviour or something. Yeah, whether they haven't brushed their hair, whether they haven't done... With the, you know, stuff like that, like little things. Ryan's just combed his hair. Right I was going to say, I just looked at my very <laughs> un- unkempt hair. Because yeah, on the Zoom, I'm sat in the middle of you two and you're both looking svelte. It's and those, I'm um... I'm just falling out of bed, which to be fair, an hour and a half ago I did. Sorry. It's those It's those little things, isn't it? You've got to... I think the, the workplace is definitely adapting to, to, to the situations and I think society will be as well. And I think... There's often, um, I see a few times on like social media and stuff, because it's quite like a weird place. You get like the the stories, it's been a big thing, mental health throughout the year, throughout the year. Um, more so than ever before, I'd say. And there's obviously very different opinions of that. And a lot of times you see quite a lot of young people coming out and, and putting on their Twitter and, and saying how they've struggled and stuff like that. Um, and I keep seeing it, I keep seeing it. And part of me genuinely does think, you, you need to stop putting it on Twitter. You need to stop doing that. You need to go and, and tell someone. And then part of me thinks this might be the only way they've got to tell anyone. Mm. So it, it's kind of a kind of a seesaw for me. I'm like, well, I think I'm kind of leaning towards it. It's good that you're putting it out there. It's good that you're sharing it with someone. So and I, I think we've seen the benefit of that as well. We've obviously created our Twitter and there's a, a community of, of people who are so very interested in, in helping people. And we've seen like the odd tweets of people actually needing direct help and the thousands of comments that come in just yeah. to, to offer support is, is I think it, um, it, it goes back to as well being awkward to have the conversation so it's easier to do it behind the screen I think a lot of people whether it's uh, sexual health mental health um, all these all these things that get wrapped up under the same sort of 
drama is that often people look for help on the internet and find them ways of trying to ask for help uh, discreetly or anonymously. People don't like to go, this is me, this is my problem, can you help me? That That's the hard part. So obviously you're putting yourself out there when you're on Twitter or you're on social media, but you may not. You may find that easier to put yourself forward to thousands yeah, yeah. of people than sit your mum and dad down and say, mum, dad, I'm struggling. Yeah, you don't have to physically say the words, which I think is is helps for a lot mm. of people. I guess that part of it is probably that we have perhaps a society that is now more accepting and more open to having these conversations and we have a lot of different mediums for them to take place and it's just about getting comfortable with you know what it's a society working out which is the best format to have that conversation you know we're being told to have these conversations we're being told to talk and it's just about finding the best format and the best outlet for people to do that i'm gonna um i'm gonna wrap us up there chaps thank you both for your uh, for your time as per usual and your your thoughts it's been there uh, it's been really interesting to talk that through and that was a, a really uh, a really enjoyable evening with sam and doing that interview i think he's just got a lot to a lot about him that's worth listening to in terms of the way that he looks at the world and the way that he approaches things and and i certainly learned a lot from from listening to him so as usual big thanks to, to simon for for giving up his time to come on the show and, and and talk to us next episode for us is out on friday we're doing another episode of not for me clive which is entitled you're not fit a referee and we're talking about referees and uh, some of the abuse that they've been getting recently and maybe a bit of a wider discussion about the abuse that referees suffer kind of on a on a week-to-week basis on on amateur pitches as well if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter at mark and underscore man or as Anne said at the very top of this episode you can email us manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com and if you have enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes then if you could jump onto apple Podcasts, itunes give us a little rating and a review and a comment that would be absolutely fantastic we're now going to leave you with simon's quick fire we'll see you again on friday you've been listening to man marking kick us off with did the game simon says give you the ultimate power as a child or did it get boring really quickly boring really quickly no one <laughs> wants to listen to me too often <laughs> given your previous role simon do you own an nus card yes <laughs> what is your favourite pastime, Simon? Horse riding. Have you ever used your OBE to get you in anywhere? If only it had that much power, I'd love to. <laughs> Are you tea or coffee? Coffee. Haven't had a cup of tea since 1993. Really? Oh, not even. They, they brew tea in Cornwall now as well, I believe. There's a place. Even Cornish tea. Yeah, Yorkshire tea doesn't do it for me. Cornish tea wouldn't do it for me at all. Yeah, th- this is a this is a big one actually, Simon. And it was a it was a hot topic of debate in our um, in one of our WhatsApp groups today. Is Friends overrated? The TV program? Yes. One hundred percent. Oh massive. You're lucky Ant's not here, he'd be fuming. He loves it. <laughs> I'm not best please, but there you go. <laughs> After being involved with the NUS, how much do you love a blue wicked? Uh so blue wicked. Any drink that is that colour can only be drunk on certain times <laughs> and they cannot be planned. Um and that's um uh I don't know if you remember uh Mad Dog twenty twenty. Uh, yeah, the green one, the red one, yeah. the blue one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, same thing. You would never go out and drink those without having drunk something brown first. <laughs>
in my mind. <laughs> um, I suppose on that same topic, then Simon, if you're if you're designated to get the shots in at the bar, what are you going for? Sambuca, Ooh. flaming sambuca. Oh, do you know what? I've got some horrible memories of sambuca. My stomach's just gone funny just in the words. I would never go to the bar and buy shots anymore. This is why I said about being almost fifty. I've learned it never does anybody any good, however much fun it feels at the time. <laughs> it's like um, like when you get the uh, like when you get where where is it that there's quad vods in Liverpool, right? Slaters, uh, yeah. They have to give you it in two two different glasses because it's not legal to give you that <laughs> serving. <laughs> Even though they know everyone's just pouring it into one. Straight <laughs> um, there's a there's a bakery on the on the Wirral Simon called Hearst's. And uh, I don't think anywhere else in the country has got it. It's a little bit of our, um, little bit of our one of our one of our prides on the Whittle. <laughs> and what one of the one of the greatest things that you can experience is the Hearst's meal deal, which used to be two eighty five, and I think it's now three pound fifteen. And you get a sandwich, homemade sandwich, uh, a cold drink, and then you get a cake of your choice. So what we want to know from you, Simon, is your three options of cake are. A flapjack, a shortbread, or an ice bun? Which are you going for? A flapjack, but I would then go outside and try to swap it for a packet of salt vinegar crisps. <laughs> are you a, are you a, a savoury, not a sweet? Savoury, not a sweet. Yes, the, the, I, when you said ice bun, my mouth went... Would you be a salted rather than a sweet popcorn then at the cinema? I would, although I just uh, had some goat's cheese and black pepper popcorn sent to me <laughs> as a gift. And I honestly, nothing else will ever be good enough for popcorn again. Goat's cheese and black pepper is the best. That sounds unreal, that. Where was that? Where was that? That's got to be like a Marks and Spencer's type affair. It was um, uh, something like Joe and, Joe and Seth, something like that. I'll send you the link. I'll send you the oh, link. Oh, yeah, I've tried them before. They have a lot of different flavours. Um, yeah, they did they have some really unique flavors. I went to an expo in Manchester and they had a stand there, and I just kept going past like every hour, like I was new, fake mustache <laughs> and everything. Each <laughs> fake mustache on, yeah, cheats oh, yeah. for the popcorn. <laughs> Simon, in the um, obviously, in the, the you've had obviously a few high profile roles. Who's the like the most famous person that you've met at any like event or anything? Who's the most famous person that I've met? Uh, so I guess it depends where you look in terms of fame. So, um, yeah, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, if you go polit politician sort of direction. Um, uh, and then celebrity-wise, uh, um, JLS uh, came <laughs> and spent time with us at Brook and uh, uh, came in a helicopter into one of the Brook services um, uh, when they were at the height of their of their fame. So I guess, um, yeah, that that would be another direction. Ruby Wax uh, is you know, another. So I guess it, Dieter Von Teese. Wow. Dancer. Um, yeah. So various Ranch Singh, CBBs, depends who you where you, where you go in terms of fame and I think um, Dieter von Tees is the is the is the number one hit there. Where there you go then, Dieter von Tees. Dieter von Tees. She a bit of she's. She, I suspect she's probably one of those that, that I can't imagine that 
there are many. Uh, you must be one of the only people with an OBE who's met Dieter von Tees. <laughs> it must be a small Venn diagram. <laughs> I have no idea. And where do myself and Danny rank in that list? <laughs> Most famous of all. Most famous of all. Uh, from from here on in, uh, we'll be uh, talking about Danny and Ryan. If anyone asks these questions, I'll be the guys from Man Marking. Get them, them on a, on a Google Hangout. <laughs> we're going to cut that, and we'll just say we didn't even prompt you to say it. You just. <laughs> came out of it. Um,